that there's a poisonous snake in your house, your family is asleep, and you just can't find it. Now imagine attempting to go to sleep yourself. That is a similar experience of someone with OCD who has a trigger of some threatening stimuli. The tremendous unsettling experience with OCD is then paired with some ambiguity. The goal for the OCD sufferer is to feel more settled by eliminating the uncertainty. People with OCD wash their hands until they feel that they are clean. People with OCPD wash their hands because cleanliness is next to godliness. Persons with OCD raise their hands, rinse their hands until they feel sure that the contaminated soap is off. Persons with OCPD rinse their hands excessively because one shouldn't walk around with soap residue on one's hands. So what is OCPD? Whereas OCD is the endless and fruitless effort to avoid or escape anxiety, OCPD is the life quest to control certain situations which in their unbridled state create a great deal of unsettled feelings. One of the two primary characteristics of OCPD entails perfectionism. Perfectionism is the excessive effort given to a task which seeks to obtain a correctness within that task. The task is complete when there is no ambiguity to detect the potential for improvement. For many professionals who have OCPD, this means that extremely this means that externally imposed deadlines brings an end to the effort, such that the corporate deadline is the determinant of the person uh, discontinuing the task, rather than them bringing the task to a place where they feel that they've reached a high enough level of um, competence or, or expertise or um, correctness about it. My first exposure to the disposition of OCPD or an OCPD tendency occurred when I was a child. I was talking to my best friend at the time and he mentioned that his father never bought his mother an engagement ring. And he explained that since his father couldn't afford the best, he felt that it wasn't worthwhile to get any engagement ring. And that happened when I was about eight and the peculiarity of that thinking stayed with me to this day. Many of my initial questions in diagnosing, pers diagnosing persons with OCPD involve asking questions about someone's refrigerator, believe it or not. What I find is that people with OCPD have such a sense of organization and orderliness that within their refrigerator or cabinetry or um, just areas or closets, you tend to find um, very, very rigid standards of where items go. Uh, people will even space hangers in a closet with equidistance between the clothing. Milk has its definite place, ketchup has its definite place, and soda has its definite place. And people keep within these very, very rigid guidelines. One of the aspects that can grow out of OCPD is excessive checking. 
it's not unusual to take at least 10 minutes to fill out a check because something bad, not because something bad might happen if there's a mistake, which you might find with OCD, but because of the horror at the idea of someone else detecting that an I was not dotted or a T was not crossed. A person might believe, how could I be so careless as to leave the check or depart with the check without being absolutely sure in their scrutiny that they haven't made any errors whatsoever? The other pervasive aspect of OCPD, which is also the one that creates most of the discord within the condition, involves a phrase that I refer to as truth-owning. My way is the correct way. My way or no way. The way I see it represents the way that it is. Truth-owning entails the possession of knowledge which is perceived to be the correct information. Most persons in society are advocates of the idea that seeing things as if their experience is a representation of how things actually are. That's not so unusual. But within OCPD, there tends to be an unwillingness to open up to the potential that another person's contradictory view may have equal and yet valid bias. Realms of truth-owning involve moral truths. Jews, therefore, are God's chosen people. Political truths. The rich should be taxed to help the poor. Factual truths. One plus one always equals two. And artistic truths. An example of this is in my office. I have a picture by an artist named Bierstadt and it's from the late 1800s, and it's a picture of Yosemite Park. And to me, it's a beautiful piece of art. But one of my clients with OCPD, who was an artist himself, looked at it and said, that is not art, that is just an illustration. Artists of that period are just illustrators. True art requires that you use your imagination to connect with what's being displayed. So for that person, he redefined according to, I guess, a modern art artistic definition. The effects of truth-owning can create a great deal of alienation from others. There is a sense of little breathing room to engage in a meaningless discussion. The effects of truth-owning can create rigidity. A listener feels the pressure to conform. A person might operate within a discussion with extreme caution, and that caution often breeds tension. Oftentimes, if you have a conversation with someone who is owning truth and living by it and instilling it in others, you feel a jeopardy at what the consequence of contradicting their view might be. Another, another aspect of OCPD, which also is involved in depression, which happens to be a very common comorbid condition within OCPD, involves something called dichotomous thinking. And dichotomous thinking is the belief in all or nothing thinking. 
It is black or it is white. There is no gray. There is only correct and there is wrong. Different has no place within dichotomous thinking. Some common attributes that exist within OCPD involve ordering. Within ordering, everything has its place, its correct place, and don't move it without putting it back exactly where you found it. Keeping one's world under control and secure is the goal. God forbid I misplace a pen. How could I feel safe in this unpredictable world? If things are capable of disappearing, what else might happen to me? A potentially maladjusted way of coping with life's vulnerability is to need to be in control of life and all of one's items. Another aspect of OCPD, which I'm currently doing research on, is hoarding. And at this point, I believe of all of the OCD rituals that go along with OCPD, and in regards to treatment success, unfortunately, I've found that hoarding is one of the most difficult and entrenched aspects of OCD and OCPD. Persons who engage in hoarding often share the idea that waste is sinful. Therefore, if I have anything that is not completely destroyed, throwing it away would be wasteful and therefore tantamount to sin. I remember I grew up with my mother saying, how could you leave that food? Think of all the starving people in Africa. Another aspect or, or cognitive disposition within hoarding that keeps people from throwing things away is the idea of, well, what if I need it later? And the mind is infinitely capable of creating a rationale where anything might be conceivably needed at some later point. And therefore, if one needs to, without any ambiguity, cut through the question that I would never need this later, you'd realize that just about any item has the capacity to be hoarded. A very interesting aspect of hoarding or disposition to people with it is sometimes you find that they create an identity to the object. The object takes on the memory of where the object was attained. So the object can have the significance of the memory or the significance of the person who gave them the object. And the object is almost like the manifest of becoming that person. And I've heard people give names to certain items and it creates an identity. And how could we discard another person in our life? It's interesting that out in the corridor, they're actually doing research at Smith College on hoarding, and they're giving away these little trinket uh, keychains. And the idea is to take it home, keep it for a week, and assess your level of difficulty in letting go of it after you've had it for a week and form the attachment with it. Another unfortunate consequence of the OCPD disposition is indecisiveness. I just want to read, uh, not to be too vain, a paragraph from the article that's uh, been distributed related to indecisiveness. 
when almost all decisions seem to take on the same paramount importance and being correct is imperative, making even simple choices can become a nightmare. Persons with OCPD can become stymied in life due to an inability to establish with certainty which is the correct choice. Choice A or choice B, it seems like it would be a simple choice. Just pick the best one. Pick the one which affords the best future. A is the first letter in the alphabet. A is the best grade in academics. It's easy. I'll choose A. But wait, A is pretentious. B shows flexibility without the rigid need to be perfect. If I choose A, then I'll always have to maintain A's standards. If the correct choice doesn't exist, then how long would it take to find it? One of the consequences of OCPD that you tend to find or experience when talking to someone with this condition is emotional rigidity. Along with emotional rigidity, persons with OCPD seem to exhibit an endless need to be in control. Feelings can get out of hand and they can become messy. Feelings are often seen as being a sign of weakness and therefore they need to desperately be avoided. Never let them see you sweat. Never let them see that you're afraid. God forbid someone should discover that I'm imperfect. Why is control so important with this condition? When I work with someone with this diagnosis, every day, every meeting, the word control echoes in my head. It's so pervasive. It's such an essential part of what drives people with this condition. I don't have any research on the answer. I just have some guesses. I think that we live in a scary world. People die, parents die, crises really do happen. We hear about it on TV all the time. I have to lessen the risks. I have to find ways to protect myself, to protect others. I have to reduce the probability of something bad happening. I need to feel secure. I need to win. I need to be correct. Perhaps all of us have reasons in our childhood which justify why we all end up so screwed up. When I was in an introductory psychology class, our professor said to us, write down the reasons that you're all schizophrenic. So he created a situation where we were a schizophrenic patient being interviewed by a psychologist. And we needed to provide a good justification for why we ended up being schizophrenic. And I can assure you that everyone in that class had not that much of a difficult time coming up with, in their childhood, all these great rationales why we all ended up becoming schizophrenic. But perhaps for people with OCPD, there's been a trauma in childhood 
trauma that a child can't make sense of and a child can't cope with. I know someone who, as a child, his father had a psychotic break, a year later committed suicide. He was told that you're now the man of the house. You've got to make sure things are okay. A nine-year-old child cannot deal with that level of responsibility. So that person's life as a child came to an end. And that person needed to start behaving in his relationship with his world in a way that gained control over circumstances. Obviously, this child had a trauma of, the, um, of his inability to control or prevent. And now he was given responsibility of the family. So there's tremendous pressure to keep things under control, to make sure that things like this don't happen again. I find with almost all of the patients that I work with with OCPD that from early on they felt a dire need to get control and to keep it. So control remains a pervasive and everyday challenge within this condition, within the people who have it. And that need to be in control creates tension. My real specialty, that which I'm most known for, is treating um, OCD. I've written a number of articles on OCD. And um, the reason I wrote this article was because I wanted people to be familiar with the difference between OCD and OCP. I think that amongst the lay population and amongst my own community of, of professionals, there's a tremendous amount of, um, there's a tremendous lack of knowledge. Us behaviorists, we really don't like diagnoses, we really don't like broad diagnoses, and OCPD is an extremely broad diagnosis, as are all personality disorders. There, there is no single manifestation of OCPD. It is a cluster of conditions, beliefs, styles, and handicaps, each of which could handicap or impair anyone's life's functioning or quality. And yet, each person with OCPD comes in with, excuse me, a particular cluster, and each aspect of that cluster deserves a tremendous amount of tension, tremendous amount of treatment. I'm not going to get into each of the specific clusters. I'm going to focus on some of the broader issues that come up in treating the OCPD. And here's where things get a little, little scary, a little controversial. Not necessarily the first one, though. The most important aspect of treating any condition, whether you're a psychologist, whether you're a proctologist, whether you're a chiropractor, whether you're an acupuncturist, or perhaps a physical therapist, the most important aspect is the therapeutic relationship. All too often, professionals create a distance and a barrier between themselves and the persons that they're working with. And I think that within this condition in particular, it's critical that that barrier be lowered and that persons with this condition be dealt completely from a humanistic level. 
I uh, prefer that my clients or my staff do not call me Dr. Phillipson. I prefer being called Steve. I don't like any relationship where there is a difference in gradation of stature. I believe that um, persons with OCPD often come in conflict with authority and I don't believe in ever elevating my being above that of human, which I'll get into and annoy you with later. I think what's critical within the therapeutic relationship is the development of trust and experience of safety and the awareness that I will not reject the person that I'm working with. I look at persons that I work with completely as engaging in a collaborative process. I often refer to people that you might call patients, I call them partner, because I want to work within an equal partnership. It's important that I convey an absence of judgmentalism, even though within OCPD, persons that I work with often will be willing and readily available to judge me and that which I say. With time, all persons who work with this condition will say something and screw up. They'll say the wrong thing, forget some critical piece of information that to the sufferer means that they weren't heard or that the professional is incompetent. perhaps even notice that their diplomas are hung crookedly on the wall and make some very generalized assumptions about what kind of person would allow their diplomas to be hung crookedly on the wall. The client with time can see these potential conflicts as opportunities to process the issue or let it fester and become the justification of the end of the therapeutic relationship. As for that person, almost all relationships are ended with a great deal of justification because those around them have behaved in the wrong way. So one of my highly valued ways of looking at life is called pragmatism. And to people with OCPD, the definition of pragmatism is, is pretty heinous, pretty threatening. Basically, if it gives you the outcome you're looking for, do it. Things are worthwhile because they bring the result you were looking for. As a basic tenet of pragmatism, within OCPD, there's a lot of initial discord or disagreement with that perspective. Persons with OCPD tend to favor idealism, which is for the sufferer often mistaken for, for realism. Idealism is the idea of how the world could or should be. It's a person's infinite capacity to create the ideal society. And for that ideal, anything is worthwhile sacrificing. Yet for the realist, which the OCD sufferer believes themselves to be, 
the world is as it is seen, as it is correctly perceived. I try to use pragmatism at some point in the development of the clinical relationship to help clients within leveraging and fostering a sense of collaboration. So they might ask me, why should I let go of truth owning? And I say, because other people will start to listen to you and maybe that's worthwhile for you. So let's examine some of the vocabulary that within the tenets of cognitive therapy as were espoused by the most famous living psychologist in the world, Albert Ellis, postulates as being sort of the seeds of some dysfunctional thinking. Number one, and probably the favorite word within the OCPD vocabulary is the word should. The word should is, I believe, extremely limiting. It denies other possibilities. Another word is truth. And truth, as in correct or wrong, is alienating. Because when your way of seeing things is not my truth, you've got a problem and I'm going to let you know about it. Ought is imposing. You ought not leave in the middle of a lecture because it is absolutely rude. And I, and for the fourth word, expect that none of you would ever speak out of turn. Expectations leads to resentment and resistance. If you tell me what you expect from me, I'll usually have a good laugh. It's not a word that I have really um, participation in, in any way of living. And the last word, which is probably one of the most controversial, is the word self. And I believe that the word self is an extraordinarily overgeneralized word. Overgeneralized because I don't know what the self is. I can't really see it. I can't pin it down. I can't identify it. You show me the self. I've never seen it. I used to. I used to think there was a self. But at this point, I don't believe that the word or the idea of self really promotes anyone's best interest. So that leads us to one of the more controversial aspects of treatment, which is the idea of humanism. Humanism can be attained through the choice to believe in the unqualified human. It's important that you look at that word choice because I can't prove to you that humans can't be qualified like good person or bad person. But obviously, Mother Teresa was a good person. After all, she's going to become a saint. 
Instead, I believe in the idea of not attaching any labels to humans. So, what kind of labels do we attach to ourselves or others? Labels that take single entities or a few entities that we observe or place a priority on and make some global conclusion or judgment about another person's adequacy. So as much as it would be difficult for anyone in our society to abandon the idea of qualifying the human, people with OCPD is probably 10 times more difficult. And yet I strongly believe that it's one of the more essential aspects of helping persons with this condition. So what does it mean to be human in its unqualified state? What can we agree we all have in common if we're going to agree that the word human exists? And the idea of defining human is critical because down the road we'll see that the way that we relate to our humanness plays a large part in our emotional freedom or in a state of depression. So one thing I believe perhaps that we can all agree on that exists within being human is that we're all infinitely imperfect. We're nuts in a variety of ways. The body is imperfect. The mind is imperfect. Normal is for numbers and not people. Labels are for jars and not humans. We all make mistakes. How many mistakes do all of us make each day? I know that when I listen to every session that I record with a client, I hear at least 10 mistakes. They're painful. It's not that I'm at peace with the idea of making some simplistic mistakes, but I know that I've always made them and I know that I'm always going to make them. So I anticipate that I'm going to make mistakes. I don't look to avoid the idea of making any mistakes. I certainly try to avoid making them in the first place. But even with that quest, I know that it's a futile one. I, I know that at the end of every session, if I listen to the tape, there's going to be at least 10. Not necessarily ones that anyone in this room would pick up but ones that after 15 years of being a shrink, I could easily point out to you. I believe that we all have moments of weakness where we all will periodically violate our values, our morals, and laws. I think also, you know, when I think about the definition of being human, I always start rolling out. My first, my first thought, my first association of being human is, imperfect. But I also believe that we all have the infinite capacity for kindness, warmth, and compassion. It's unfortunate, but it seems that we have to bypass some of the emotional weaknesses to really contact those facets that we all have the capacity for. Perhaps if we can acknowledge that we all are subjected to the same gravity which pulls us toward engaging in the shortcut. 
engaging in the less disciplined choice. Maybe if we acknowledge that we're all subjected to that same gravity, we can find it within ourselves to be forgiving of our own and others' frailties and regrettable acts. I generally advocate with all of us that we give others the benefit of the doubt, even though you're sure that you know that the person in front of you is clearly aware that they're stepping on your toe. I think that often and all too often we believe that when we're being treated with disrespect or lack of consideration, we're totally convinced that the person who's behaving that way is aware of it. But I always remember one of uh, my mother's favorite questions to me if I started speaking to her with a little more intensity than she appreciated. She would look down at me and she, she'd say, Steve, are you yelling at me? And the answer was always no. It always had to be no. But it was really important that she asked me that question because she gave me the opportunity to assess if that was what was coming out, whether I wanted to continue that. And that's what's really being advocated here, that when we are wronged, as we're all going to be, that we try to clarify with the offender whether or not they're aware of their actions and the consequences for us of their actions or our perception of their actions. Now for uh, an even equally uh, sticky topic as the elimination of the self, the idea of something called low self-esteem or even the idea of self-esteem in the first place. When I was a first year student in a master's program, I remember sitting at a desk and I remember thinking to myself, no matter what people come to me for, the one thing I want to accomplish in my work with them is to improve their self-esteem. And I thought, and one of these days, one of these professors is going to show me how I can help people feel better about themselves. Um, unfortunately, at this point, I uh, never was taught that. But what I came across in the principles of cognitive therapy is the possibility of choosing to perceive self-esteem as an illusion. And with that in mind, I developed a saying a few years ago and it goes, just like the consequences of believing in ghosts, if you believe in self-esteem, you will be haunted by it. I believe that self-esteem is an illusion, and it's the illusion of overgeneralization. Once again, what is the self, and how can I have esteem about myself? What I can perceive within my being are the infinite qualities that exist within me as a person or that exists within other people, within their humanness. I can formulate a histogram that's infinitely long and put a bar, by the way, a histogram is just a, it's just a graph that shows relative uh, strengths or weaknesses on bars that go above zero or below zero. So 
when I first learned about self-esteem, people were kicking around with this idea that, well, what you do is you get someone to take a piece of paper, put two columns on it, and on the right column you draw, you draw out all the parts of you that you think are positive, and on the left column you draw out all the parts of you that you think are deficiencies, and then what you do, something really sophisticated, you see, you start to weight them. So, well, I'm a good dresser, and that, of course, is a nine and a half. And I'm a very talented sailor, so that's an eight. On the boat, unfortunately, because I'm intense, I have a bit of, bit of a temper. So, unfortunately for my crew, I see that as a negative two. So I'm going to take all the qualities that are important to me, or that I think are valuable, and I'm going to put them on the scale, and I'm going to see those numbers, and I'm going to add them up, and lo and behold, at the bottom of those columns is going to be my self-esteem, you see? So, I always end up being about a minus 2,000. And it occurred to me after I had, um, not to sound egotistical, but to kind of show you the absurdity of self-esteem, after I had achieved um, the uh, entrance into a doctoral program in clinical psychology, which I'm happy to say is the second most difficult professional degree to achieve, second to veterinarian school. I had finished an internship at Johns Hopkins, which as we all know is the best hospital in the entire world. I had already helped a number of people. I had discovered the mysteries of meeting women. I had a number of good friends, and yet, when I looked in the mirror, the answer was always, when I asked, do I like myself, the answer was always clearly no. So it didn't make sense to me that I would live and die with this self-hate. It, it occurred to me that there was a fallacy in philosophy that a person would live that way. And fortunately, I was reading the works of um, Albert Ellis and uh, David Burns or Aaron Beck, the fathers of cognitive therapy, and they posed the idea that self-esteem is a misnomer. It's just as I was saying, it's the overgeneralized reaction to one's qualities. So what I was doing is I was taking some of the defects that existed and have always existed, and some defects that will always exist in my life. And I was placing a tremendous amount of weight on them, and the effect of that judgment for myself and for what I believe everyone who has self-esteem is that the mind selectively focuses on the negative aspects. And it generalizes those aspects to the entire person, meaning me at that time, <laughs> 